0: I agree with Ralph. We've got to have rules and obey them. After all, we're not savages. We're English, and the English are best at everything. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. And this is Wheel of Genre. Wow, what a quote to open up this episode. It's a shame that John isn't here. to give us his thoughts <laughs> on whether the English are the best at everything. How you He's doing, got Bob? got the
1: data. Good. Very sleepy. Worked uh, 80 hours last week. How you doing, Zay?
0: Oh, my God. I'm, I'm doing good. I uh, worked too many hours yesterday, and today's looking to be another ripper. We read William Golding's Lord of the Flies.
1: My goodness. We've read lots of dystopian books, and we're reading it for the series of dystopian books. We've read some adventure stories, too. And this week, I'm really interested in how does Lord of the Flies relate to dystopia? How does it relate to utopia? And does it break anything or does it give us anything new we haven't seen before? Absolutely. And I, you know,
0: I, I've heard of this book, obviously. I think many people are assigned to read it when they're in school, maybe middle school. That seems a little, well, middle it's school is great. It's, the right time. School, it's right. dark. Oh, the, the kids can't sucks. <laughs> Welcome to seventh grade. With seventh grade, where the strong eat the weak. Uh, <laughs> I never read this book, though I did act in a short stage play called "Lord of the Fries," like French fries, yes, which is I know. like <laughs> <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it was like a Kevin Smith Mallrats reimagination of what would happen if some nineties kids got dumped on an island. Cool, but but I never had that original. You know, I never had I. Just I just only the saw the simulator. You yeah. got the simulator.
1: Simulator. <laughs> this was new to me. Have you read this book before? Probably seven years ago. Like it was a commuting book when I would walk to and from work in Portland and walk by Henry Weinhardt. So I associated it with the smell of hops. <laughs> the br- the brewery over there. <laughs> anyway, yeah, read it a sure. long time ago. Couldn't remember it much. I was happy to jump back into it now. And I have a lot of different opinions than I did when I read it the first time. There's a lot that I just misremembered or that I think is culturally misremembered. But what did you think about it, reading it for the first time? Well, for the first time, sure. So I only had reputation
0: to go on. And a play. And a play, but I don't remember anything about the play other than it was funny. (laughs) This book was not funny. So uh, like right off the bat, you know, you kind of have this reputation that, oh, you know they're going to kill each other. And the marketing for the Penguin 1997 edition says on the cover, before the Hunger Games, there was Lord of the Flies, which I thought was a really interesting way of going about it. Mm. And it kind of introduces this as a dystopian text in a way, because I think most people read the Hunger Games as a dystopian text, but I think that Lord of the Flies is less commonly seen as a dystopian text. But this kind of invents the predecessors for the Hunger Games. I think I mean when I read about the Hunger Games, I've never actually read it. I hope you read it in this podcast. But when mm-hmm. I read it, I was like, "Oh, this is that one Japanese movie renamed Battle Royale." Battle Royale. Oh, That's so a they, good movie. they So they Ooh. translated Battle Royale into English and published it as a book. Got it. I think it's kind of a creative leap and an interesting one to be like Lord of the Flies is the first Hunger Games. So Pig. right off the bat, what they're doing is they're telling you that they're going to kill each other. And I also think that by setting up the fact that they hunt pigs on this island and naming Oof. a character piggy, piggy, to me, set up a kind of like false promise in the sense of like as soon as I realized- They're
1: going to roast Piggy.
0: I was like, yeah, oh, so they're going to kill any Piggy, which Oof. did not happen. And I was, I don't want to say disappointed, but- Oh my
1: God, but, but I thought. <laughs>
0: I felt like we had something that we were building towards that they then pulled out from under my feet. You don't want to say
1: disappointed, but uh, <laughs> I was a little disappointed. I was a little let down. <laughs> um, I really like this comparison. The first Hunger Games, Hunger Games is excellent. We will read it soon, and the whole series. The writing is very good. I think the the most boring part is when it turns into Battle Royale because it's just describing action, but the Mm. characters are incredible in that book. The writing is very high quality. But I like that people use this as an example for dystopia. I think people, teachers teach Lord of the Flies a lot to talk about society and to talk about how to create a society, like a utopia, how to make something good and how to watch if something starts to fall apart. I think Ralph and Piggy talked a lot to each other about why are things falling apart? What's causing things to fall apart? Why are things breaking? And I think that's a good reason why it's compared to a dystopia, because it starts off as a utopia, like many of our dystopians, and turns into a dystopia very quickly. Let's let's try to define dystopia, because I feel like,
0: you know, I, I still think there's an open question about whether this is dystopia, or whether this plays in the tradition of dystopian literature like other books we've read. You have Gennys and Miatan's We. Versusly mm. Kayla Gwynn's the ones who walk away from Omelas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just gonna throw out something. You can mm. you can agree or disagree. Top. I think dystopias require the protagonist to leave their normal setting, mm-hmm. whether that's geographically or time-wise. And whether and, and maybe not just the protagonist, but the reader to leave this world and go to a different world,
1: geographically or in time, where the rules are Different, but I don't think it always needs to be someone in out. It's not always an outsider going in. I think often it starts as someone deeply implanted in the place and starts to wake up. If we think about Hunger Games, Katniss is in. You know, th- th- there's no other world except for the dystopia they live in, mm. and she eventually she doesn't like it. She tells the reader she doesn't like it, but she explains to the reader how it works, and we as the reader go along with her, knowing that it sucks.
0: This is actually very true in books we've read. So in mm. Ginnies and Yatins we you have a world where. There's no personal pronoun of I. And then one day, one man wakes up and says, wait, I am I. Mm. So you're right. You're right. It doesn't require the protagonist to go anywhere. But I do think that maybe the dystopia needs the reader to be taken somewhere else. While it might seem like you could just create a book that's only newspaper headlines from today and yesterday, and you could call it a dystopia. I think that dystopian literature, like as a genre point, requires us to not be in our world.
1: It requires us to be skewed somehow. The point of a dystopia is to exaggerate a society or build one that is already broken. How far removed it is from reality can vary, I think, dystopian to dystopian piece. I also think that the
0: dystopia needs to exaggerate certain elements that are present within our real world society in order to be like hey if we keep going in this direction mm. we're going to end up here
1: and it's not going to be good like a warning piece this is we you know that's what you mentioned for the giver we yeah. need a warning of if we continue on this path we're going towards destruction do you see we we talked about whether or not the giver really has that message do you feel like it's here in lord of the flies
0: i could read that message into it for sure for sure first off 30 seconds what happens in lord of the flies okay kids crash their plane on an island They quickly try to institute a form of democracy Mm. involving a conch shell. It splits into two tribes. Mm. Our protagonists wither away under a kind of like individualism. And then the others kind of, I wouldn't say wither away, but kind of like turn into this kind of like first semi kind of like fascist and militaristic strongman politic tribe and then they go full like what's the word i'm looking for savage savage sure yeah yeah to to the sense of they're making they're making sacrifices to an unknown to appease an unknown beast you know it's really they kind of they kind of slip into the world of Taboo, religion, sacrifice. There's one word that can, you know, politely sum all this up and is escaping my mind right now. But chaos. Chaos. Yeah. And then, of course, they're rescued at the end. So to swing us on back, if you were to ask what is the kind of marker that they're saying don't go in this direction, it seems like really it starts with their first form of government and how it kind of breaks apart. So it seems to be like a warning against the breaking down of good old-fashioned institutional democracy. Or
1: maybe that's how I'll read it in 2023. I was, um, so I was watching an interview, an old interview with William Golding, and he's talking about his life. He served in World War II, and a big part of writing this book was he didn't believe in humanity anymore after seeing what happened in all of the camps. So he was saying, when I tried to write before, I was trying to write a good story. This time I wanted to write something that showed that there is evil and that evil exists in humanity. So I think the boys, the first boys, they try and make a society. Piggy and Ralph, I want to talk about the characters more in a little bit, <laughs> but those two try to uphold something, some goodness. But that definitely falls away for the the other kids who Golding starts calling the savages eventually. He doesn't differentiate between the boys. He doesn't call them boys anymore. Now he just calls them savages in the novel. And they become so violent. They have this chant where they hunt people down and they, they're hunting pigs, but they start, they say this chant, they have this, they, they, they turn into a cult almost, a cult that goes a little bit insane. They dance around in a circle, they threaten people constantly, and they chant, kill the pig, cut his throat, kill the pig, bash him in. This? They, they lose all humanity through the course of the book. Almost all the boys, except for a few who want to maintain order. There's something really interesting going on where William Golding is looking at evil in humanity, but also children's literature and boys' adventure stories. Because he says he wanted to, he told his wife after they took their kids on vacation and they had to read Treasure Island, they had to read Cannibal Island, they had to read Gold Rush, all of these different island stories. And he says, okay, I want to read a story, write a story where kids get stuck on an island and what actually would happen would happen. He imagines this is totally what would happen to kids if they got stuck on an island. Democracy, any kind of proper government would fall apart and it would turn into savagery, it would turn into murder, it would turn into lies, it would turn into appeasing a pig head on a stick. And I like how the book opens because it's a total utopia. The boys are all really excited to be there. They're like, there's no adults. We could do whatever we want. There's beautiful water. The mountain is pink. We love it. We love living here. Thank God those adults all died. Then when it becomes dangerous and they have to survive, they try to work together and it just it can't happen. It just turns into chaos. It turns into human beings becoming evil. So what do you think of the idea of children's literature as this utopia that then falls apart then and Golding is pushing to then become a dystopia? I think children's literature is a good way to look at it. But I I think
0: that what it falls apart into is... Something that you see also perhaps more commonly in adventure novels. So like I think of like I think of like H. Rider Haggard's King Solomon's Minds, which features a character coming from the West or like the North, you know, Europe basically going into Africa and being confronted with, you know, the kind of other, you know, the magical other. A society that's kind of like tribal and magical and superstitious and employing like a kind of dark magic or voodoo type of thing. This is a trope we see all the time in 19th century adventure fiction. And Mm. I think that what Golding has done, he's made it so that this kind of encounter with this other society doesn't happen from one person to, you know, a person of culture A to culture B. He's saying that society is hiding within us at all Mm. times, just waiting
1: for an opportunity to come out. Golding seems to be very negative here. It's not just an other that's coming out. It's an evil that's inside these kids.
0: Yeah, so, so the dynamic shifts from like an agent of pure good creating justice and setting right a society of evil, or perhaps narrowly mm. escaping a society of evil, versus agents of supposed good. Each of them in their own ways succumbing to this evil that's within them. Maybe not each and all of them, but I I would argue that most of the people in this story do degenerate in certain ways, whether that's, you know, Jack with his, who comes vaguely fascistic and militaristic with his boys' choir. And then, you know, it turns into him with a throne and then like leaves with like, You know, offerings and tributes being given to him by the voice of the choir. You know, he turns on into this kind of like tribal leader. Or whether we're talking about our protagonist, Ralph, kind of like slowly forgetting what they're doing. He's like, I know we have to keep the fire going, but I can't remember why. Oh, the smoke to signal other people, you know. He's not doing well either. It's not like he's becoming a better version of himself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no one's becoming a better version of he he has his time to shine. He and Piggy do a lot of things that are impressive that make the reader think wow these are good people but yes he talks about this veil that starts to come over his eyes and it's like a veil of forgetting and he gets lost and he he doesn't become often as tribal and chaotic but he does get lost in the vagaries of what am i supposed to do well the moment i thought was very interesting for the two of them is when they murder There's a a character, one boy, who comes down from the mountain. Everyone has been building up this beast, this beast all the time. They think this beast is going to kill them. Finally, Simon, who's been missing for a few hours, comes in out of the dark, and there's a storm brewing. They all say, oh, my God, it's the beast, the beast. They've been doing their dance. They're all dancing around. Even Ralph and Piggy have joined. The dance, they don't even notice themselves. They could start to get scared because of the rain and the thunder and the lightning. And they join the dance out of this fear. And then as a group, they murder Simon. Piggy and Ralph say, well, we were on the outside of the circle. We were on the outside of the circle. And they argue back and forth like, well, we still contributed to the murder. So even they get corrupted because of fear. And they they are implicated. they're at least an, an accessory to murder, or at least they didn't stop it. So even the, even the good people are falling.
0: yeah, they're all they're all falling, but it's not also it's also not falling. It's kind of being swept away by a current mm, swept away, yeah. that caught is no. yeah, like larger than themselves. And when mm. we talked about the giver, we talked about the whole society being a kind of like dance. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. no past, there's no future. They're just caught up in this dance. And I kind of get the sense that in a different way, when they're chanting, kill the pig, drain its blood, you know, blah, 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 they kind of lose themselves. It, it's a dance in its own way. They lose their sense of self. The only thing that exists are these kind of larger than life figures in their minds of the beast, the king, kill, you know what I mean? And that image of the beast can transfer to different objects. So after mm-hmm. the, you know, after Simon approaches them, when they're doing that, you know the object that they want to kill is no longer a pig. It's the beast that has now entered right. their domain. And they kill Simon. And then afterwards, they're like, well, didn't we kill the beast? And they're like, no, you can never kill the beast. You know what I mean? It's this kind of like, it's, a, it's an objectless fear that hangs out in their psyche that then attaches itself to a single object, enter this trance-like dance rhythmic, cultish state to strike out at that object.
1: I want to talk about the dancing and compare these two things, but it's interesting too in this fantasy world that the people in this tribe and the savages are building. They're, they're living in a fantasy world and they say, yes, no, we can't kill the beast. Of course we can't kill the beast. It's the beast. But that starts too when they, they're saying, did, did we murder him? No, of course not. Of course not. Jack says, no, it's an it. We didn't kill anything. How, how could we kill it? So it starts from an excuse and then turns into more of their lore or more into their religion, almost avoiding the truth. What do you think when we're talking about these two dances, it's very interesting to think of them in comparison because looking at them, they look absolutely different. The giver would be like a dance where it's like a cuckoo clock. It just goes around, you know, it's very, it never changes. Like you said, they're just doing the motions and every cycle, it's the same exact way. There's no past. There's no future. There's only the present going around and around. This in in the the kill the pig, drain the blood, it's a very fugue dance. Fugue. Yeah. You know, a good it's word. bacchic. It becomes murderous. But neither one's moving forward. You know, the, the tribe is going to be keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. They're stuck there. They're just going to be in their path. And I wonder if the giver is going to be going over and over and over again. This, you know, murderous dystopia and this perfect, perfectly ordered utopia, neither advances. They're both in stasis. Mm. Do you think we can compare them or are they like utopia and dystopia or chaos and the giver as utopia? That's a
0: really interesting point. Yeah. So on one hand, you have order, order to the point of rigidity and the cogs, cogs going around and around like a clock. You have chaos disorder. It's spinning so fast that they can never build anything. You know, there's, there's no discipline when you have these cogs that are hyper locked in together. Like the yeah. giver, there can be no history because there can be no change. When you have a story like this, there can also, in a sense, be no history because yeah. they can't build anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They can only try, you know, try to build huts, but they they're awful. They get knocked down. You know, yeah. there's no, there's no, there's not enough order for them to actually Damn. construct something positive. So what they do is they kind of revert to myth and yes. myth. Yeah on its own, doesn't change. You know what I mean? It's always, there's the bad, there's the good, there's eternal. Key. Here's
1: the conch. The conch means this. They live in the myth. The idea of not being able to build anything or building towards anything, having no progress and no purpose. There's a very simple thing that these two camps, these two boys who are both born leaders, or one wants to be a leader and is that fascist, and the other one just is a natural leader. He, he kind of leads by character, by example. He just is doing things. People say, oh, it seems like the right thing to do. The one who's doing the right thing is Ralph. Typically, he's doing the right thing. Jack is the one who forces people. He becomes kind of the king of the savages. I love the divide in the book. It's so simple. Ralph says, okay, whatever we do, the most important thing we can possibly do is create the fire. Like you said, we need to make the fire to make the smoke. We are boys. We will die here. We will be here forever unless someone sees the smoke and comes to get us. Jack just wants to lead people and he wants to be in control. He sees that people get driven a little bit mad, and but also mad in devotion by this idea of hunting and killing. So he's saying, no, the most important thing is the pig. So it becomes the ship versus the pig. And that starts to split them apart because they decide, no, the people who are rational, let's do the thing we know can return us to society. Jack says, no, Let's. I will force everyone to do the thing that keeps me in power, which mm-hmm. is the pig. It divides them completely. They have different goals that put them in different directions. One is progress. And the other one is chasing the pig, chasing the pig, chasing the pig, chasing the pig, chasing the pig. And the chasing the pig and the fire comes back again because they have to trade resources at one point. So it's the cause of their rift it brings them back together, and then it causes a war between them. Uh-huh. I just love how simple this book is and how it gives us these symbols we can use to look at these two, the broken societies, the ways, different ways societies can break. And it's interesting because
0: we talked about kind of like character degenerations and how no one is immune to that. Ralph himself gets caught up in hunting the pig. Yeah. even There's he, that moment where where he gets, you know, he, he goes and Sticks the pig in its haunches and he's like, did you see that, everyone? Did you see that? You know, he, Right he up it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and well, the right up it's part is part of that degeneration. I think Ralph wasn't yeah. necessarily involved in that. But there is this moment where the, the hunt goes, the transformation of the hunt happens according to this kind of like these stages. First of all, they want the pig, but they're not quite brave enough. You know, they catch the mm. pig, but he, he can't bring the knife down. Jack can't bring the knife down. When they finally kill the pig, you know they're all ramming it with with sticks, sharp sticks and a knife and they're like, "Oh, I, you know, I was ramming it right up its ass." And so there's, there's this kind of like vulgarity that happens from like the pig is no longer a sacred object that they have to, you know, kill in order to, you know, become you know, whatever kind of like next level, maybe it's like a manliness thing. They, they need to like kill it. A rite it of passage yeah. almost. Yeah. A rite of passage. It's a great word. Mm. Then the pig becomes something that they defile and really? they become not just hunters in like a sacred sense, but kind of like predators in a mm-hmm. profane a, sense. Profane sense. Yeah.
1: Well, I love the moment when we said right off its ass. The kids all react to that because a lot of these kids are really young, you know, Jack and Ralph applies probably 12, 13. And some of these kids are seven, eight. And they hear that and they go, did you, did you hear what he said? And they all start imitating it. And just that bad word and that kind of behavior starts to infect everyone too.
0: Yeah. So there's like this breakdown of norms, morality, and, and part of that is centered in language. It's not just the act because they didn't recognize the act for what it was while they were killing the pig. He just said that he had the stick and he was ramming it deeper and deeper into the body of the pig. You know, right. it, it's not explicit because I think the character themselves don't realize what's going on. They're just trying to kill the pig. It's only afterwards yeah. that they put language and an idea to what had happened. And the way they choose to formulate that language is quite profane. And that
1: profanity infects everyone else, it degrades the way they see themselves. The way the kids see themselves is such an interesting thing going on here. When the war is happening, and Ralph and Piggy and all of the kids with morality and with society, they go to confront the savages. But they say, let's dress up. Let's look right. So we can go and confront them and represent society. But they're so dirty. They, they go and they try and wash themselves. They try and get their hair to look right. And they just can't do it. But they know that would make them look right. Eventually, they have to decide, well, at least they're, they're painted. They're savages. will at least be differentiated in that way. But the boys start to realize that they have been degraded and they need to, if they continue on this path of degradation, they will turn out just like the savages and they will all be stuck there.
0: Yeah. And it, it's interesting how clay functions. I mean, Golding describes it as a mask. Yeah. And yeah. when you wear the mask, you lose any sense of like, not only a sense of self, yourself can hide behind the mask and allow you to do actions that yourself would otherwise not be tied to. So they can, they can in a sense, become other people when they put on this kind of like clay and blood. I think they smeared themselves with different colors of clay and blood. And at first it has a very practical purpose. They're like, the pigs keep seeing us, so we need to camouflage ourselves. We're going to wear this to become camouflage. But then what ends up happening is they they kind of their humanity fades into the wilderness in the same way that their physical appearance fades into the wilderness.
1: There's a there's a cult that I really like where this happens when Jack is the first one. He's he's the leader of the savages, he's the first one to do it. And he uses clay. I think maybe he uses blood too. And he also uses ash from the fire. Mm -hmm. He paints his face. He doesn't get it right. He tries again. And then everyone starts behaving differently around him. And here's the quote. It says, His laughter became a bloodthirsty snarling. He capered toward Bill, and the mask was a thing on its own, behind which Jack hid, liberated from shame and self-consciousness, the face of red and white and black. The mask compelled them. So they just start listening because he has this mask. He's become otherworldly. He's become kind of a myth himself. And so they do too. They step into that myth world.
0: Yeah, that's a really good quote. I want to
1: talk Piggy. Everyone always trash. Every, whenever you ask anyone about Lord of the Flies, well, oh, if that's the one where Piggy gets killed, right? Well, I mean, yeah. uh, Piggy isn't you know, portrayed well here.
0: <laughs> True. He's uh, very annoying. He's introduced as asthmatic and poor-sighted. So, you know, already we kind of place him as like a creature of the indoors, of the library, of the school, of the institution. You can't see without his glasses, kind of like me. Yeah. (laughs) And he can't work too hard. He can't climb the mountain because, as my audiobook narrator put it, my asthma. my, My asthma. Yeah. So he's kind of introduced as kind of like a less than. He's corpulent. Yeah, he, he's picky, you know. But <laughs> I, th- mm. I think for me, the really defining characteristic of him is he's always seeking an outside authority for validation. Whereas, like mm. a character like Ralph, you know, Ralph will appeal to his own rationality. We need to mm. keep the fire going because this is what will save us. Jack will appeal to power, his own power. He's his own law. He says, I'm going to take the glasses and what are you going to do to stop me? But mm-hmm. Piggy, he's always he's always, quote, what's the grown-ups going to say? cried Piggy again. Look at him. You know, he's always Wait. wondering what the grown ups are going to say. Or he's always appealing to the conch shell in his hand. He's like, yes. why won't they stop talking? I'm holding the conch.
1: Piggy I think is my favorite character now. Ralph is the one that's the, the cool guy. He's right. always doing, he dives, every, he dives better than everyone else. He's stronger than everyone else. He's the best fighter. He's the hero. Lawful good. He's the one who takes the bread and closes it, twists it, puts it back where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or no, you know, I think he might be chaotic good. And then Piggy, I think, might be lawful good. Mm. Here's my reason why. Here's my reason yeah, why. Yeah, please. Piggy is portrayed as like a little pipsqueak. He's terrible. He's a wimp. He doesn't help. He sucks. All he says, I've got the conch. I've got the conch. They should listen to me, Ralph. Make them listen to me. But he also calls, whenever they're behaving badly, he says, you guys are behaving like a bunch of kids. We can't be doing this. We need to be behaving like adults because what will the adults say if they come and see this? So it's annoying, but he's right. And without him, Ralph would be joining the dance. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe Ralph is so naturally good, but I don't think so. I think Piggy is a voice of reason in a way. And he becomes brave. Eventually, he's saying, we've made a law about the conch. Remember that, remember that, remember that. And people refuse to remember that. He is the voice of society. At one point, he does get brave. And this is after Jack steals his glasses in the middle of the night. Piggy says, everyone else is about to give up. Piggy says, no, I, I refuse to give up. He goes to confront Jack and he says, I'm going with him with this conch in my hands, bringing society, bringing order with him in his hands. I'm going to hold it out Look, I'm going to say, you're stronger than I am, and you haven't got asthma. You can see, I'm going to say, with both eyes, and I don't ask for my glasses back. I'm not asking for a favor. I don't ask because I expect you to be a sport. I'm asking because I know what's right is right. Give me my glasses. He is trying to assert that there is law. Yeah. And I think Piggy, for another reason, is important because he's the reason they get fired. Sure. Ralph is the one who says, let's build it. But it's Piggy's glasses. When the glasses are stolen, they're not stolen just to take Piggy's sight away to make him blind. They're stolen so now the savages can make their own fire and they don't have to depend on these other people. Simon says at one point, like, Piggy does does help us because he's the reason we have fire. We used his glasses. That's how he contributed. So in a way, he gives this little society fire. He brings it down to them. Then it's stolen away by the savages. So I think Piggy... Thematically is important, and I think his decision to say no, we should have order, even though he's really annoying. I think he's an important character, and a I, good character. I
0: like this idea of redeeming Piggy as a kind of like moral good, a higher standard to which we can hold everyone against. I, I mean, when you talk about that moment where he's like, "Oh, I'm going to go there with the Conch and I'm going to demand my glasses back," I, I also think that there's an element of naivete there, yeah, which which is annoying. Well, but. <clears throat> Well, but do you need, I mean, in order to have higher ideals, do you need naivete? You know what I mean? Like, like you have to hope against all, in order to have something truly good, mm. you have to hope against all reason that goodness is possible. You mm. know what I mean? And, and you can always use evil to enforce good, that- but Piggy's, the beauty of Piggy is that he wants to use good to enforce good. He Listen. thinks he can say I'm holding the conch therefore we will we will mutually come to an understanding that this is right and this is good and therefore the right thing will happen. As
1: a reader we know that well <laughs> <laughs> the right thing doesn't happen. Yeah. Piggy is very different from William Golding, I think. I think Golding recognizes that Piggy is unreasonable and that he is naive because he says, I've got order, we should follow order. Piggy expects these savages, the people who have given up everything, who have murdered, who no longer believe in reality, and have built this fantasy world and are going to do anything to maintain it, they are the superior ones and they will kill anything that's outside of it. Piggy still expects to see a human response, to see a just response. He is naive to say, I've got the conch. You're going to do what's right because I expect that of you. And I think this this book is more pessimistic than that. Piggy gets smashed. He gets hit in the face fire rock, thrown off a cliff, crushed when he falls, and then wiped out to sea. Bob, I'm really interested in the idea
0: of whether this book is optimistic or pessimistic. I think that's a thread we should pull. Or, or Piggy. I mean, we, we, we talked about Piggy is an optimist. However, Piggy did get the conch exploded by a flying rock, oh, he fell off a cliff, bashed his head, and his oh. brains went out into the waves. It was a very gruesome sight. That
1: was rough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Midsummer, And, you know, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I was expecting him to get killed, roasted, and eaten. I was like
1: cannibalized. Yeah, for
0: sure. You can't name a character Piggy without me assuming that bacon is going to get made. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think he did have a poetic death in the sense of the talisman of goodness, of law, of their kind of democracy of institutional the order, order yeah, the, was The smashed. call to assembly. Yeah. yeah. And then the symbol of human rationality, the brain, the head, sure. was cracked open and leaked out like an egg yolk into yeah. the
1: waves. Uh, in, the, in the interview that I watched with William Golding, he was a sailor. He grew up next to the sea. He spent lots of time in the sea. His whole family, he took them out on a boat and they almost all died. He almost killed his entire family because he was like, let's go on a nice vacation in my boat. He he tells the interviewer, I love to come out to the sea and I'm sorry I brought you here. It's so loud. They're shouting because it's so loud. I brought you here for a really important reason. I look out at the sea and I just watch wave come after wave come after wave. They're totally indifferent. And for humans, that's where we go every night when we sleep. It's the unconscious or it's the irrationality. It's things that just take and take and take or give things you never expected and you have no control over it. So the image of piggy, the rationality, brain, first law is broken. The conch explodes. His head explodes. Rationality. And it is taken by a wave. I feel like Golding is connecting that, that terror of the ocean and of the unconscious being the, you know, the, the, the claws dragging all of society away into the sea. Yeah, I think it is a very good, disturbing, but good image. I like how Golding uses or not uses,
0: personally views the sea as a symbol of these, this kind of like violent, unconscious a place we go when we dream, because I think that it kind of clarifies the setting that he's put us into. Mm-hmm. And I think it really. I think it's it's a good image that I wish I had connected to earlier. Other other SF authors will make this kind of connection explicit. I'm thinking of the book Solaris by Stanislav Leb, where what you have is a ocean planet, but that ocean planet is dreaming and it's conscious and it's projecting its dream it's it's connecting to the mm-hmm. dreams of the people on the space station, projecting that out. I think as we read nautical fiction in the future, I think that this is you know, the sea as unconscious is something that we can pick apart and play with and see where this pops up again.
1: C is always on this man's mind, William Golding. Right? He's had so many ways that it's impacted him, uh, you know, as a naval, o- not naval officer, but he served in the Navy. I think though, too. A big part of his reason for setting it in the sea, setting an island, is returning back to those those boys' stories. We've already talked about this a little bit, but adventure stories and boys' stories. The end of the book, one of the last sentences, when when the navy comes and they say, What have you boys been doing? There's two deaths. Oh my God. Well, we better take you home. One of the final lines is Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. And I think this loss of innocence is really important to William Golding's goal. He said he wanted to write a book where all of these adventure stories, where it's kids on an island, kids on an island, pretend, 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 fun, fun, fun. Let's have a good adventure. And then we go home after it. We have fun. It's always a utopia. Even if there's pretend violence or pretend dystopian elements in there, it's a utopia. He has done something new where he's written children's literature, which shows a loss of innocence. You know, it presume that that's the, that's one of the main ideas he's trying to get across is that their innocence can be trampled by the darkness of man's heart.
0: I, I'll I'll tell you, speaking of the darkness of man's heart, I was expecting this book to end with Ralph being like, "Just me, I'm the only one left. Let's go." <laughs> <laughs> Can't
1: leave these people. Yeah,
0: in. yeah. I no. thought it was a optimistic note. I, I pregnant pause. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it was an optimistic note for William Golding to end the story with everyone collectively waking up. Not just Ralph cries, but the people who are chasing him cry. Right. Yeah. And he gives the perspective of the outsider, the sailor, who's just deeply uncomfortable. Just like, what the... (laughs) (laughs) He looks away. (laughs) Yeah, this is not what I signed up for. I regret that we've talked about this book for 48 minutes now. And we have not
1: once brought up my main man Simon, Simon and the Beast, Simon and the Beast. I want to talk about the Beast too. So why why do you like Simon? What's what's interesting about Simon? Well, I you know I was kind of thinking about our
0: three main boys who aren't Jack. I was thinking about mm. them in, in this kind of like tripartite institutions of the state. You know, See what? Ralph kind of signifies the kind of like political leadership, you know, maybe president, president, yeah. Piggy being something kind of like an intellectual class, you know, he's got the science, he's got the technology, et cetera, you know. But, But with Simon, what you have is a kind of prophetic revelation. Simon can see things and it's, you know, it's described as a kind of like disorder that he has, you know, he could feel it coming on and when he sees the severed pig's head, he hallucinates. It's not clear. It's left purposefully ambiguous on whether this is a mental illness that's causing him to view the pig's head as talking to him, or whether he's able to see beyond the veil of reality into the true dark undercurrent where the Lord of the Flies, which is a literal translation of Beelzebub, which is, you know, Satan. He's able to pierce the veil of reality and see this kind of demonic presence that's with them that's causing them to act in these ways.
1: There's a good quote when you're talking about he's, he's having these hallucinations and he's having a dialogue with this beast. It's a, it's a stick with a, the severed head of a pig, kind of its mouth yawing open, staring at the kids. It's taller than them because the stick is high. And it says to Simon, says, I'm warning you. I'm going to get angry. Do you see? You're not wanted because Simon starts to doubt this pig. The pig says, understand, we are going to have fun on this island. Understand, we're going to have fun. So don't try it on, my poor misguided boy, or else. And Golding tells us then, Simon found he was looking into a vast mouth. There was a blackness within, a blackness that spread. So in talking with this demon, with this devil, or this thing that's happening inside of his head, It does drive him nuts and ends up getting him killed because he kind of loses the wherewithal of what's going on, just starts running out into the darkness, comes out of the darkness and they murder him. Yeah. But what is this? What is the beast? Ralph and Piggy constantly lament like the the breaking up of order, but the beast is like a breaking up of sanity or just the devil leading them into doing devilish things, running around in a circle and murdering people. But what does this mean for society? Is it just the devil leading you to temptation, leading you to chaos? It's a really good question that I don't really
0: have an answer for. And I think it's left purposefully ambiguous. And I think that part of Simon's function as a kind of like religious type figure or prophetic type figure, shamanistic type figure even, is -hmm. that these kind of things can't be rationally explained away. You can't put away this kind of like rapturous, hallucinatory Prophetic experience in a box and perfectly explained away. It needs to have poetic
1: open ends that can't quite pin down. So, where does it come from, though? I'm thinking it's it's two things going on because it's the result of violence, the result of finally doing violence, what they've been trying to do this whole time and they've been too afraid to do it. But it also this idea of the beast comes from fear. It's first a little kid saying. I saw something in the dark. And they say, no, there's nothing there. It's an island. It's not big enough to have a big beast. And another kid says, yeah, I I saw it too. The kids start mixing up nightmares and reality. And then the older kids start believing in it. And they start all telling each other about this beast. And they think it's something actually hunting them. What they end up finding is the the pilot who jettisoned himself out of the plane, I think to save himself and then just let everyone else die. But he had a, a parachute, died. And now it's a corpse being dragged around by a parachute. It gets dragged up the mountain, and it's this beast that occasionally, like, rises up, looks at them, and then rises back down because of the wind. Yeah. But then they transfer that onto this this severed pig head. All of this fear that's been boiling up and boiling up. The fear that keeps them away from having a real assembly and real democracy. Yeah. Being afraid of something that's not there, of this nothingness that they've dreamed up, and leaving that fear fester or spread or get out of their control, now it's become mythologized. And it's the yeah. beast. It's interesting because it is the beast.
0: It's not the beast. Is the Lord of the Flies actually the beast or is it that thing which generates their fear of the beast? You know, a puppet master, if you will. Mm. And it's it's not clear, it's not answered, but I think that Golding wouldn't want it answered. He would he he wants these kind of open questions to be left unresolved
1: yes no one should answer the devil i want to talk about one more thing just to get us set up for our next dystopian books i think something we we started you started this episode very rationally and then i took us off into the chaos like jack and the savages but you started this off saying let's think about things that define dystopian books what do we need in this book to qualify is it dystopian is it not I think one of the most important things that we've seen again and again and again is there's rules in the utopia. You need rules so you can stop certain behaviors that will wreck. That is pretty much all the giver is about. That in memory is just here's our rule. This is what happens. This is why we do it. It's because of our rule. The boys try to establish rules, and at one point Ralph gets so frustrated he's like, "Our natural instincts are not serving us anymore. I'm calling the calling assembly, blowing the conch. Here are the new rules." And they lay out one by one by one by one what they're going to do. We have to keep the fire going at all times. We can't fight. We have to protect the little people, et cetera, et cetera. I want to see in future books how different rules work, because I think a utopia needs reasonable rules. Everyone can agree on them. They're rational. They have a good reason. A dystopia, I think, either needs rules everyone knows are unreasonable, but know they should not say it, because if they say it, they'll get killed. And that's most of 1984, and I think Hunger Games. Or B, rules everyone knows, I'm doing scare quotes, knows are unreasonable, but only the reader knows that they're bad, which would be The Giver, the beginning of 1984, we, Repent Harlequin. So I want to see, like, how do people understand their rules and to what degree are they rational? I think that's very important for these utopian, dystopian books.
0: All right. On that note, we better wrap this up. Well, I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later, Zach.